I've really appreciated uh, the opportunity to be here this week. I hope that you guys have enjoyed the week of uh, thinking about mission. Um, and uh, I, I hope that you don't feel like it's over, even though the week is coming to an end. I hope you keep taking the opportunity to be thinking about mission. Uh, my role with CMS, uh, in case that wasn't clear yet, is to talk to people who are thinking about uh, becoming missionaries. Um, what, a, what a great job. That exists as a job. That's amazing. That's part of my role. But the other part of my role is to help churches do a good job of sending missionaries, of partnering with their missionaries and helping missionaries do a good job of partnering with their, their churches because it's a two-way thing. Um, and so if you're not about to become a missionary and you're chatting to me for that, you're about to go to a church, I imagine, so you can chat to me about that. And so either way, uh, we can keep uh, chatting to each other and that would be really nice. Um, how about we pray as we uh, come to this last uh, session looking at God's word together. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your heart for the nations, your heart for all peoples to come under the Lordship of Christ. Uh, we thank you that you are still at work these days. You are patient in sending back your son so that more people might come under his Lordship. Father, please use us wherever you may place us uh, to bring him glory and to see his cross proclaimed to people that you might walk powerfully by your spirit, bringing them into your family. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Uh, on Wednesday, I don't know if you remember back to Wednesday, uh, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 1, uh, and we overlooked a section of Paul's argument showing how the effect of the preaching of the cross doesn't fit with human expectations. Uh, we see that the power of God working through what looks like weakness. Uh, so let's just jump back there real quick, because uh, we skipped over it on Wednesday. Uh, from verse 26, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, or literally according to the flesh. Uh, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Not many of you were wise, not many were impressive by human standards. That's what he says to the church. Now, I'm not sure that I want to say that about this group of people here today. I've not met all of you, uh, but my sense is that around college, uh, and maybe even in our evangelical church circles by and large, of course with exceptions, but especially here at college, the people who are going into ministry in our churches, we're more likely to be on the end of pretty impressive by worldly standards. We're pretty middle class, we're pretty well educated, very well educated often, we're pretty wealthy. Yes, there'll be exceptions, of course, uh, but if you don't think that you're very impressive according to the world's standards, if you don't think that you're very middle class, that's probably a good indicator that you actually are. In many ways, that's, that's neither here nor there, right? In many ways, it's, it's just a fact of who we are. But we need to think carefully about what problems that might cause for us. And it's a point of difference between us and the Corinthian church. You see, Paul's point here is that when he looked at the composition of the Corinthian church, 
is that it's composed primarily of people who are not influential or impressive according to world standards, according to the flesh. That shows that the gospel is not only for the wise and influential people of the world, but more than that, it shows that God has not called those who are impressive by worldly standards on the basis of that impressiveness. No one has the right to say, God saved me because I'm wise, well-educated, and a future leader of the church and society. And therefore, no one may boast before him. But what do we do about being a group of people who are composed of more impressive, influential people? What particular challenge is that going to present to us? I think we're going to find it harder to not boast in ourselves. The danger of being impressive and capable is that we rely on ourselves, that we place our confidence in the flesh instead of embracing our weakness as we rely on the power of God to be that which is at work in us and through us. Uh, In Philippians 3, we also see what maybe we could call Paul's impressiveness. Uh, We see reasons why Paul would have had reason to place confidence in the flesh. He starts uh, for verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, That same word that was used in 1 Corinthians, uh, in the flesh, uh, to talk about not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Uh, And Paul is is clearly stating his position here from the outset, right? The true circumcision are those who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Don't make any mistake, he's very clear about where his confidence is, but he's about to run a bit of a hypothetical. Uh, You can can almost hear him saying, indulge me for a moment, as as Paul likes to do. Uh, And he goes on, we put no confidence in the flesh, verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's a pretty big claim, isn't it? That for righteousness with respect to the law, he was faultless. This kind of reminds you of that, that rich young man who comes up to Jesus, claim that he's kept all the commandments, doesn't it? If justification was based on being the best Jew possible, if belonging to God relied on human effort, confidence in the flesh, Paul would have been one before many others to have legs to stand on. But that's not how it works. And for Paul, we've got to think beyond our kind of individualistic way of thinking. These things were not just between him and God. These were markers of belonging to a community and his standing within that community. If you're thinking about how he is respected and honoured within the Jewish community, Paul is at the very centre. He would have been looked to, honoured, respected, followed. His, His Jewish bona fides were indisputable. How much pressure must there have been on Paul to maintain his opposition to the Jesus sect? Because giving up all of these things implies giving up his position of belonging within the Jewish community. But we know 
that Paul does not place his confidence in human concerns, not in the wisdom of this world. He does not put his confidence in the flesh. Since his life-shaking encounter with Jesus and coming to know him, how does Paul look back on that background and standing that he had in the law and in the community of Israel? Uh, continuing from verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Whatever advantages and standing he had as a Jew, he now considers them as a loss. But not only those advantages and standing, he, he generalizes to everything. He considers everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything counts for nothing compared to the worth of having Christ and being associated with him, being united to Christ. Now, Paul is, is quite adamant here making this comparison, and the word that he uses is pretty spicy, uh, the word translated as garbage. Uh, we could question if that's a, a faithful translation because the, the word's a little bit more shocking and, and a bit more crass than that. Uh, French word of the day? <laughs> no, we'd better not. Things could get a, <laughs> things could get a little bit too colourful. Let's not go there. Um, let's just say, let's, let's use a French word of the day. Uh, French love to classify their words in terms of formality and where you can use them and where you can't. And let's just say that, um, you know, in non-polite company, you can use familiar words. And this word is très, très familier. <laughs> Enough said. Uh, but that's kind of the point of what he's getting at, isn't it? Uh, Paul is not sticking to politeness because he so strongly wants to emphasise this point. Uh, the contrast between the things he previously considered important and a part of his identity compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What really matters for Paul is gaining Christ and being found in him, from verse 9. And then he's immediately talking about righteousness, because that's the whole question that he's exploring here, isn't he? That's where he started in verse 3. Where is he placing his confidence for his righteousness? It is not a righteousness that comes from the law. It's a righteousness that comes from faith, from Christ. Uh, faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. Either way, it's a gift. Not that he's earned. It's a gift that he's received by faith. So those previous identity markers are not just irrelevant now, but they're worthless junk because they can be the kind of thing that he could be tempted to place his confidence in. They could distract him away from having God's gracious righteousness received through faith. And that's exactly what he's warning them against, isn't he? He's warning them against those people who still want to convince you to put confidence in the flesh, to justify Paul's conversion is such a drastic change from being a persecutor of the church to an apostle planting churches all around the ancient world. I think we can see the drastic nature in the level of 
change in his actions, uh, squashing and destroying the church to building and establishing the church. But what about at the level of his identity? Those are his actions. What about his identity and who he considers himself to be? There is also a complete reorientation of what the basis of his identity is. In his previous life, he looked to himself for his identity. He looked to the flesh and to his belonging to the Jewish people. But when he comes to Christ, Christ becomes the centre of his identity. That's what he's really getting at here. Instead of having a confidence in the flesh, what defines who he is is being found in Christ. The only thing that matters for him is being known by Christ and knowing Christ as his saviour. What about us? What about our sense of identity? What do we build our sense of identity on? Uh, in the individualist West, uh, we often define our identity based on, on what we do. When you first meet people, you ask them what, they do, what do they do. Uh, and if you, if you listen to the internet, apparently, if you want the conversation to stop, just tell people you're an accountant. Uh, apparently, that stops the conversation. Um, maybe, maybe an identity of being an accountant isn't the most important to you. Uh, maybe what defines you is being a student here at college. Maybe what defines you is being a minister of the gospel. Surely there's no danger in relying on that identity, right? What a great thing to be a minister of the gospel. But let's not underestimate the heart's capacity to contort good things with our disordered desires. It wasn't until I went to France that I realised how much I defined my identity based on what I was able to do. Arriving in France and not being able to do those things anymore made me question how I define myself and who I saw myself to be. Um, I remember the first time I attended a GBU Bible study group. Now, bear in mind, we'd been, we'd been praying for the GBU, the, the student work in France, for, for 10 years before going to France. Uh, we'd made the move to the other side of the world, started to set our family in there. Uh, the GBU needed more gospel workers to come and support the work there. Uh, I was the answer to my own prayers to send gospel workers to France. I'd done a traineeship, I'd met with students, I'd organised conferences, I'd run Bible studies, I'd trained students, I'd raised up gospel workers, and I'd been to more college and done four years. I was at the top of my game, surely. I'd already done almost a, a year of full-time language study, and I was ready and rearing to go, and there I was in this little group of students, maybe five of us, opening the book of Luke and discussing a passage there together. And my brain was so caught up in the French, following the conversation, trying to understand what people were saying, trying to look at the text and understand what it was saying in French. And, and I'm looking at this passage and I'm thinking, now I, I'm sure I've read this passage before, but I had nothing to say. My whole brain was caught up in, in understanding that I couldn't contribute to the group. And I'm sitting there thinking, I've been to more college, you know. I'm sure there's something I have to say about this passage. And the Bible study finished without me being able to say a single word. Who am I if I'm not someone capable of making some insightful comment on a text of the Bible? Who am I if I'm not a capable, capable minister of the gospel? a capable teacher of God's word. Now, maybe for some of you, that wouldn't provoke such an existential crisis, but I'm not as strong as you. 
Um, and that's just one example of the frustration of not being able to function like I could in English. Uh, things would slowly get better along the way, of course, but it brought up plenty of questions as to what, what value was I to these people that I'd come to serve if I couldn't even open my mouth in that Bible study. And over time, I came to realise two things. The first one was recognising that I was not there to solve their problems. You see, white saviourism is not just for people who go from the West to the rest. I think it can be a way that we think about mission that, that we can slip into easily enough here in Sydney when we talk about the needs out there in the world and how we can be responding to those needs. Uh, it's an attitude of arrogance. You see, there's a fine line between, on the one hand, saying that God has generously blessed us as the church here. How can we share those blessings with our brothers and sisters around the world? To, on the other hand, say, the church is really struggling in France. We need to go fix it. The first view leads to generosity, to thinking about how we might humbly serve alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, getting on board with the work that God is already doing somewhere learning alongside them as together we serve our Lord. The second view is just ignorant arrogance and ultimately it's misplaced confidence in the flesh. It's self-confidence rather than reliance on our Lord. The second thing that I realised uh, was more about me thinking through what defined me as a person. I came to realise that I was placing my identity placing my confidence in what I was able to do as a gospel minister? Was it my ability to say something about that passage in Luke in the Bible study group? Was it my ability to communicate the nuances of the doctrine of atonement that made me valuable in God's eyes? How foolish to think that, right? But it's easy to do. I had to disentangle my value and worth from what I was capable of doing. My identity is not in what I do and what I'm able to do. It is first and foremost being found in Christ, being God's son, having a righteousness not of my own, but one that is a free gift received by faith. That is what it is to have a cross-shaped identity. We could ask the questions, uh, what things do we celebrate? What things do we admire? Is it the things that are impressive by worldly standards? Even here in the college community, what are the things that impress us the most? Because those things that impress us the most here are the things that we're going to carry out into our lives in ministry. And we want to be a college community that celebrates its identity of being redeemed in Christ. Not ignoring gifts in some kind of weird false humility, but making sure that we're not defining ourselves by those things. Celebrating those gifts, but recognising and giving thanks to the one who gives those gifts. The victorious Jesus, giving gifts to his church by his spirit. Again, God working through our weakness. When we think about mission, sometimes we're put off by the sacrifices. Maybe we're a bit scared. And as you talk to missionaries, ask them. Ask them and you'll hear stories of the costs, of the sacrifices, of the pains, of the things that they've given up. 
It's right to be cautious and a bit hesitant about that, right? It's right to be wise and carefully thinking about who we are, who God has made us to be, to think about what's entailed, what kinds of things are we going to give up. But sometimes we forget that in sacrificing things in our lives, in placing ourselves in a situation where we're not in control, what's the only place that we're going to turn? The only place that we're going to turn is to God and to learn to rely on Him. You see, what, what is our greatest desire? Is it not that we rely on God in all things? Paul puts it like this in uh, verse 10 of chapter 3, Philippians. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and pers- pers- uh, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. Cross-shaped, isn't it? Is that your desire? Is it your desire to participate in the sufferings of Christ, to become like him in his death, to live a cross-shaped life? You see, don't settle for lukewarm faith. Don't sell yourself short. As you talk to missionaries, there aren't as many around now, it's Friday, but in the rest of life, as you talk to missionaries, ask them if God is good. Ask them if God has grown their faith. Ask them if they've learnt more and more to see their identity in Christ. Ask if they've learnt to rely less and less on themselves and to trust our very good Father. Why would you want to miss out on that? Yes, there are things to give up, but there are so many amazing things about doing mission. The cross is our message, bringing salvation as it's proclaimed. But the cross also shapes our lives. Lose your life for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel and know true life. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for Paul and his example of how he gave up all of those things that would have been so easy to put his confidence in. And yet he so clearly communicates that those count for absolutely nothing compared to the surpassing goodness, the supreme goodness of knowing Christ, but especially by being known by him. Father, we thank you so much for this great privilege. And Father, we long that more people in this world would have this privilege of being known by Christ. Father, we get so caught up in looking to ourselves, looking to our own abilities and identities. Father, please help us to form our identity solely on being yours. And Father, please may we be faithful in how we go out with this message of the cross, faithful in declaring it and proclaiming it, but also faithful to be living by it. And we pray that as you enable that, you would receive all the praise and the glory because it is all due to you. Amen.